0: Welcome to the A to Z Running Podcast, where we help runners thrive. I'm Andy.
1: And I am Zach. And up next, we respond to listener questions about switching events, hills in races, and run-walk method. And after that, world of running updates about Diamond League madness and more. Well, it is that time in the month again. Well, not that time. Is it that? Time? It's not that time, but it's this time in the month again, where we answer your questions, the best time of the month. And there's a good chance that you missed your opportunity to ask your question. But you didn't miss it. Burning question on your mind. But in fact, you didn't actually miss it because you can ask a question anytime yeah. and we'll queue it up for the next episode at the end of the month. And so go to itisyourrunning.com question anytime. Ask any questions whenever you would like and we will feature responses to them at the end of each month. And we, and we'll share thoughts, we'll reply to you too, so you don't mm-hmm. have to like wait a whole month to get any kind of answer, but yeah, good
0: stuff. We love creating listener-driven content, the things that you are all asking and wanting to know but also we love to hear from you if the content is helpful. And so we appreciate hearing from you. Like Douglas wrote to us, I really enjoyed the latest podcast you posted on running form. You both have a way of presenting information that is easier to process, understand and apply. As a high school coach and adult runner, your pod energizes me. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of this is because you both run, have skin of the game and coach keep up the great work and thanks for continuing to put out stellar content that no doubt helps many people thank you for those kind words douglas that's
1: very nice i'm not
0: saying saying you all need to you know send notes to compliment us but i do like to hear that these are the types of discussions that are important to you in addition to our q a episodes that are specifically questions that you have
1: yes unlike zach who is hopelessly arrogant andy lacks self-confidence sometimes with our content and wonders is it really all that good and no matter how many times I say, it's the best content in the world, <laughs> she likes to hear from you as well.
0: Yeah, I do, that's not what we're asking. We're not asking, oh, no. we're not asking for compliments. We're, I, I just wanna, like to know that if we're on track to helping you.
1: I did want to say, in, in directly response to Douglas's comment about the energizing part of it, that, uh, that I appreciate that. Because being a, a cynic and often a little bit too pessimistic myself, it's good to help me focus on positive things. And you've done that, Douglas, Mm -hmm. given us more fuel for what we share. Okay. Now, speaking of fuel for what we share, that's why we do this episode every month. And that's also the thing we enjoy the most. So keep up the interactions, the questions, the comments, and things like that, because then we actually know that there are some people who, in fact, do listen to this podcast. It's great.
0: Speaking of listener discussion, let's get to our Q&A episode.
1: All right, we've got some great questions for you here this time around. We've got great questions every time because they're your questions what would we say? Would we say, we've got bad questions this month and then go on to answer someone? No, we're not going to do that.
0: I find these especially interesting though.
1: I think any question is a great question. And actually all of these could
0: have been an episode themselves, I think.
1: Well, that's how, that's how it goes. And often what we do is we realize when we start to see a frequency of questions, certain topics, then we say we should do a more thorough investigation. Um, and so we, we create an episode around the topic, but as you might guess, the thing we always say is that context matters mm. most yeah. for mm-hmm. these types of things. We can talk about general conditioning all day long and what that kind of thing should look like, but the way you do that in implementation is never the same as somebody, well, it's, it might be the same, but that would be coincidentally, not It just
0: helps it make sense if you're hearing like the thought process behind decisions that are made within context.
1: Yeah. So first question from Mike.
0: So Mike just completed an Ironman triathlon. Congrats, Ironman! Wow. And it was fast, a very competitive time. Mike, he says Mike a reasonably is, competitive time. I'm like, this is a very competitive time.
1: Mike is a little bit humble in the way he asks this question. <laughs> He's like, yeah, it's, it's this is a decent time. And we, then we look at him, we're like, oh my goodness. Yeah.
0: For instance, he ran just over three hours in the marathon at the end of his Ironman. Yeah. So an already competitive, super fast time that would you know for a standalone marathon he did during an Ironman. So
1: solid work, Mike. Very exciting.
0: Yeah. And it was from a uh, big bike ride the day before. And so, oh, sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. I messed this up. Okay. So he ran just under three hours for a marathon in training, but in a controlled way off a big bike ride the day before.
1: Right. So, So So three hours, give or take a little bit, is a marathon time that he could expect to be able to do in a standalone marathon race. Right. The question more then is, well, let's continue on. Yeah, He'll let's continue on. Yep.
0: <laughs> He's never done a marathon specifically. And in Ironman, it feels like the marathon is more about survival rather than pushing the envelope. That's,
1: that's because it is. It is. About I survival.
0: mean, it's a big event. Yeah. How many and hours that makes have it you super impressive. In? Yep. So this is a, this is a really uh, exciting question because I just love to hear about what athletes are doing in, in their specialty, but then also bringing that around to what it would look like if you're training specifically for a marathon so the question from mike is coming from ultra distance multi-sport my aerobic engine is pretty big Mm -hmm. yep i'd say so
1: 18 to 20 hours of training a week yeah
0: i can already cover the distance as demonstrated in training and the event i've had a four-week unstructured break post ironman and signed up for a standalone marathon with 12 weeks to go would you suggest moving straight into the conditioning phase for a six-week block and then a short strength block, sharpen up, and then taper? I've added a couple of half marathons and a 30K along the way to, to track process, progress. This is my context specifically. Uh-huh. But I'd like to know what you think about cross-training volume in general for runners when trying to bup- bump up the aerobic volume.
1: Well, Mike, the biggest constraining factor for adult athletes is amount of time available to them, just in life in general. And so if time were infinite, and clearly you have found a way to prioritize training time at higher volumes than most people, 18 to 20 hours a week is generally considered to be impossible for most adults. They just, they don't have the time for it. Or or they're just, that's not, that's more time than they are willing for this thing it needs to occupy. And you need to build occupy.
0: up to that amount of time. Yes. So it's also consistency in training. Props to you, Mike.
1: There's certainly that as well. Um, so as far as your question about like cross-training, the more general question, yeah, we do think that they there could be value to additional cross-training on top of running that anyone could do. Um, and the example I'll give is we talk about uh, 10 hours as kind of like a nice barometer for anyone to shoot for. doesn't for matter. Running. Yeah. For running training. So it doesn't matter what skill level you are, what experience level you are to work toward the capacity of sustaining regular 10 hour weeks of training is like, that's a lot. That's a high volume, That's a great workload and most people can do that healthily when they work up to it well. Um, and most people don't really do any more than that even if they're like the best runners in the world. (laughs) So, so that being the case, um, 10 hours of running, uh, but then what we start to do is we start to look at that. Okay. That's 10 hours of running when you're talking about running once a day. Um, you could do that in some doubling, but in theory, that's most people are doing that once a day. So then we add to it. Well, if you had the time and you wanted to, it is valuable to add additional training experiences outside of those 10 hours, which are your kind of your staple. And so then you talk about double runs, which might be a thing that someone might do. Um, you could be doing double runs for up to five or six more hours in a week, like an extra hour run most of the days of the week. Um, and that itself could be valuable if it's super easy effort. You're talking about very light effort. So someone could theoretically do that. Very few people do, and I don't generally ever recommend someone does that. Um, but you're talking about, you know, what what would you potentially do in this cross training volume? So then you could say, okay, well, cross train that additional. If you run ten hours a week, cross train an additional six to ten hours a week, and that's that's what I would say is a, a potentially sustainable maximum possible volume.
0: And this is what I would like to say because you've already been successful at the marathon, even though it hasn't been specific training just with the marathon. So what you've been doing has been contributing to great success.
1: Well, I'm not telling him to do something differently. He asked just in general, what do we think about cross training volume?
0: Right. So I guess if we were looking at like what you just said, having there be, if you wanted to bump up to the 10 hour and then do the cross training, that seems like it'd be a really good balance for you specifically, since you're already at such a high aerobic level. But then also, you know, you've, it sounds like you've been able to be really consistent. I mean, with your, I guess I don't really know the backstory in that, um, but it looks to be the case and your results speak to that. Yeah. So if it's been a positive, all of this has contributed positively, positively to your health and performance, we don't want to swing it all the way to running. I wouldn't think. Right.
1: Um, well, like
0: doing the double days, like you had mentioned, that's
1: running. not the question though. Um, okay. maybe, but, but you're asking what you should do for your running training for this marathon specifically um, as the focal point. And so, so in that sense, do you want to continue cross training during that time? Are you planning on just running during that time? You didn't actually say that. And so we don't, we can't speak to that directly. Um, if you're planning to continue cross training, then we would ask you in a situation like that to consider shifting your run volume up to 10 hours at most. I wouldn't go beyond that um, for this kind of a duration. But you, you, you clearly are either listening to us regularly or are very familiar with the same concepts that we use in our recommendations because you started talking about the conditioning strength and sharpening blocks. And so my assumption here is, you know what we mean when we say a conditioning block, which is about 10 hours of running, which is going to include that two and a half hour long run, some other efforts throughout the week. So here's the way I would approach it then in terms of structuring your season, your 12 week block is, the assumption here, much like what you're making, is that um, you already have a good general aerobic foundation. You might not need eight to 10 weeks of conditioning to get up to good aerobic condition. That is true, Um, but I would not make the assumption until it happens. And so this is the, this is the place I would take this right now. The three most valuable things for you to improve your marathon potential in a 12 week block, based on what you've already done within your triathlon work is, um, including more race specific types of efforts, which we'll come back to neuromuscular and running economy considerations, because as you might guess, swimming and cycling a lot is not neuromuscularly the same kind of experience as running. And so running efficiency is somewhat reduced by multi-sport athletes. Um, And you can take any example. If you take a triathlete who uh, does a six-month period of time where they only train for running, they become substantially more efficient, more economical during that time Um, because you're just spending a lot of time doing other types of things. And so it's reasonable to assume that you could increase your running economy through neuromuscular development with a more focus um, come back to that again as well and then the last one is the muscle recruitment side of it strength orientation type of work and so that's where you're alluding to in your question you've got 12 weeks and if you can build and assuming you probably can a, a good aerobic foundation in less time than a normally considered for a season because of what you're coming off of Then the the period of time that's going to be the most valuable to you to improve your potential marathon performance is that four week strength block. And you could do three or four weeks. I wouldn't do anything fewer than three weeks. It's not going to add much value anymore. But if you can do three or four weeks of a dedicated strength block for the marathon, I think that's going to make a substantial difference um, in terms of the potential in this moment in time. Twelve weeks is not a lot of time to change some of these bigger factors, um, but you can influence them positively in small ways. So that four-week strength block is when you're doing some harder effort long runs, like two-hour-plus runs that are at a little bit higher effort, like steady and tempo. That's where you're also doing hill work, which is very important here um, because that's where you're going to increase some muscle recruitment factors in ways that you can't really do so with any of the other stuff on the regimen. And then also keep in mind during your conditioning work, things like those fartlek workouts for the neuromuscular side are going to be really valuable. Um, so there's some ingredients within the training that if you can accentuate them further is going to by by focusing on them more, spending more time doing that, like two steady runs in a week instead of one, things like that. If you have the capacity for some of those elements, um, great. But What you need to do is while you're doing the conditioning work is you need to monitor your progress there and don't try to advance on to that strength work if you're not ready for it yet. Because then what's going to happen is you're going to risk injury. You're also going to risk um, less benefit from the training that you're doing if your conditioning is still taking a bit of time to fully build up. So consider those. Mm -hmm things.
0: And you had said race specific efforts, which it sounds like you have the 30k event and half marathon, a couple of half marathons along the way, which is, is great. And that would be advisable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So otherwise it's things like that or it's some time trials type of stuff. But since you're doing races already, you don't want to do time trials. Well, it depends
0: on when they are as well. So closer to your race day, you'll want to have some shorter time trials.
1: Yep, and I would avoid any races within three weeks of race day. Uh, For a marathon, it tends to have a negative, a net negative effect. Yeah, he didn't say anything about 5Ks here. So I'm assuming, Mike, that uh, those races, if you have a race on the schedule that's within three weeks of the marathon, I would scale the effort back a touch and not do a full race effort. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a fair bit to think about, Mike. And I appreciate the question because it gave us plenty to think about Mm -hmm. as well. Thank you for asking.
0: Thanks for that question.
1: Next question is from Lorenda, specifically about hills. So she writes, because I am constantly running hills in my neighborhood. She lives in a hilly neighborhood, it sounds like. I was wondering what your thoughts are on tackling hills during a race. Well, that is relevant because hills are a familiar experience for you. Um, And so then there's a little bit more here. For example, uh, should she continue uh, up the hill at the same pace as before, which you already know how we're going to answer a question about pace? Um, Should you hold back, conserve energy, something kind of in the middle? Um, Should you consider changing your form at all when running hills? Like posture, uh, you'll, you'll often hear the old lean forward up the hill kind of thing um some of that okay great question lorenda appreciate it so you have you you run on hills a lot it sounds like you live in a hilly spot um which means two things first um everything that we say here has has a caveat that if you spend l- very little time on hills then you have to approach it one way and if you spend more time on hills just regular day to day then you approach it a different way so since you spend more time on hills we'll keep that in mind as we mm-hmm. share some thoughts
0: yeah. I heard growing up, and you probably did too, Zach, and listeners out there, you've heard the phrase to power up a hill.
1: I mean, that wasn't like training was a, advice or well, racing advice. That's just because people want to be tough.
0: Attack the hill. Yes. I, heard, I, had it yelled, I, I had it yelled at right, me. Right, because high school country. coaches
1: think that well, you it should be tough. wasn't a
0: coach. It was just like people yell to attack the hill. And I would like to say that our approaches are not to attack the hill.
1: Well, it depends. The energy that you're
0: spending attacking the hill, the energy that you're spending to power up a hill often has diminishing returns.
1: Always has diminishing returns. So uh,
0: the the framework that I have approached hills is to maintain the same effort, although sometimes it will be an increase of effort a little bit um, as I'm going up the hill depending on my situation. But I try to keep it within the same effort and not go over the line and... That is the way I approach it. And it the will the line
1: be, what line?
0: The line is where you can't come back from and you feel like crap.
1: <laughs> so Andy's specifically referencing your lactate threshold, but that's not exactly what happens in a moment like that. so we'll we'll try to make this clear in a,
0: but I mean, I mean, just it. in the in the uh, the sense of I am not going to be able to maintain a good effort yeah. through my entire race, which is the goal, right? You want to have a good, you want have a good race. So, that is my approach to hills. You were about to say something.
1: Yeah, no. So that's that's not your approach to hills. That's that's one of oh, the right, right. main approach. I, I didn't mean, that's come up with it. <laughs> that's the way we recommend that people consider a- addressing hills and races. But that's where the caveat comes in because, Lorenda, you're very familiar uh, physiologically with hills. You run on them a lot. So someone who runs on like flat ground a lot, to Andy's point, you're going to always feel like your effort is increasing just to get up a hill. Um, unless you have trained yourself well to for the muscle recruitment factors running uphill. So being one who runs on hills a lot, it's easier for you to trend, transverse, traverse, to traverse a hill. Um, and so that being the case, maintaining effort means you're going to be able to comfortably run uphill. It's gonna slow you down a little bit because you're not trying to increase your effort to keep your same pace. That's the main thing that we recommend. Um the, first of all, I don't know why you're paying any attention to pace anyway. <laughs> um, you already know better than that, but the, the point she means is effort. Uh, maybe,
0: I think most, people... maybe she's trolling
1: us to get a question <laughs> and here's Zach talk about pace again. Um, but it, whatever the case may be, uh, it, in the asking, Loronda, you're right to wonder, because that's one of the approaches, um, where people will say, you know, you try to maintain pace, you increase effort a little bit, but, um, as long as it's not, you're not running a mountain race, then, you know, you're not going to pay for it too much. But that's the interesting perspective, right? Well, you're not going to pay for it too much, but, but you actually will pay for it some. And so that's, that's a risk. And it's not a risk worth taking, because it doesn't make physiological sense. Um, think about it like this, in, in a race, if you're running at your maximum potential sustainable effort, and then you say, I'm going to increase effort for a little bit, chances are, that's going to reduce how much you can sustain the maximum potential effort again. Um, And so if we consider energy as like a linear thing, it's not perfectly linear either though. And Mm -hmm. so there's going to be considerations here. And this is where I bring in the different things you might wonder about. So if you're running a longer race, for instance, in longer races, you can recover from increases of effort middle of the races um, because you're not trying to sustain as high a percent of maximum through the race, And so if you increase effort for a little bit and then you go back down to kind of like a steady, sustainable, then you're probably going to be all right. If you have to do that a lot, that's a problem. But if it's like two hills in the race and you try to just stay strong up them and you increase effort a touch and you've trained well on hills like you are familiar with running on hills in your neighborhood, um, your day to day running. So a slight increase in effort on a long race to get up a hill without losing too much ground is not probably going to harm you. We don't want you to deliberately think about trying to run harder up the hill because that's too much of a risk.
0: And I have something to say about that too. I think the mentality of powering up or attacking, that can actually lead to not running in the most economical way up a hill because you want to try to r- run light and quick. You, mm. don't, you don't want to be pushing really hard so off that, the that, ground.
1: Yeah, that goes to your comment about posture, Change. Yes. And in fact, there is a posture change with hills. It's not what you were alluding to. It's not this lean forward factor, although you could do a little bit of extra leaning forward, but chances are very few of us actually need to or it should naturally. lean forward anymore. Yeah. Um, what you should change is your cadence. Yeah. You should take quicker, shorter steps on hills because it's going to cost less energy than the driving, bounding step up the hill. Um, it's going to cost less energy. It's also going to, um, In terms of like muscle recruitment, it's valuable because it's not quite as taxing with each step, but it adds to, uh, you're using muscles in a slightly different way, which means that you're not fatiguing some of the other ones you're going to be using again on the flat quite as much. So you you shorten those steps, quick light steps on a hill. That's not a bad way to do it. Um, increase your cadence, but don't try to, you're not trying to charge up it. Mm -hmm. That's probably going to help you out. Now there's,
0: I have one more thing to say. Go ahead. you're going to notice on hills and that's why we recommend hills in the strength phase of training as well that helps you become a more efficient runner it helps you become a stronger runner but also in considerations because we're discussing it of your form and efficiency you're going to notice more about how much energy you're expending lateral like side to side so if it is better to with the smaller steps to try to eliminate as much of the side to side energy that's being expended, if that makes any sense.
1: I mean, that's, it depends. It's in, gen- if this hill it is is in general. This not very steep that you're not going to notice that. Well, but
0: I, I'm just saying, in general, it is really good. Like, you want to have a really strong core. This is all the time, but in, a, in the hill running, especially, it can help you uh, in training to do this in your regular flat running, but to have a strong core a strong posture is going to help you not have as much energy loss.
1: So we're, we're talking about racing, but Andy's note there in training, it's different, um, in terms of the recommendation there. So that's where I would say if you're, if you're racing, that's how you want to adjust posture. If you're training, you actually want to do kind of the opposite where, um, specific, yeah, specific Hill workouts, uh, And only do these after you have done some good solid conditioning because they're just not very effective unless you're in good condition. Um, But that's where you focus on a more exaggerated driving, knee driving motion, um, push off motion going up the hill. So it's almost your steps are more pronounced, almost like a bounding stride to try to really exert that uh, push off and Mm -hmm. Um, upper leg strengthening drop.
0: The thing that I was trying to allude to or talk about was the similarity of how your engagement of your core is important because a lot of people, when they get tired, they slouch and that you see even more of diminishing performance uh, when you're doing that on a hill than most places that you're running. You have to have like strong core engagement.
1: Yeah, sure. Okay, so the last thing, the last thing to note is shorter races, it's not always the same recommendation. Um, and so I did want to make, uh, make mention of this because if you are in like a 5k, for instance, you're running at closer to maximum or higher percent of maximum effort. Um, the hill is going to have a substantially different effect because now what we're talking about is, um, if you increase your exertion even just a little bit when you're already at that kind of a level, then you're risking more of what Andy was suggesting earlier on um, the line, although it's not really, you shouldn't be thinking about it in that way. You should just think about it in terms of um, when your heart rate increases in a race, the higher, the overall effort, the harder it is to re regulate your heart rate. And so in a 5k, if you're running pretty hard and then you have a Hill and you keep running harder to try to get up that Hill, then chances are you're never gonna actually recover from that. Uh, Most people won't be able to unless you really scale back the effort. So then what you actually wanna do in a 5K, this strategy here is even more extreme where you really wanna be careful to just keep the effort low on the hill, almost like pulling the effort back a touch on the hill, shorten those steps so it's just really short, quick steps, get up that hill at a nice, easy, controlled, and then you get to the top of the hill and then you turn the drive back up again And what you're going to do is you're going to demoralize your competition because they're going to see you at the top of the hill increasing your exertion, which is always the best time to surge in a race, by the way. It's not on the hill. People always do this. The hill is not the time to pick it up in a race if you're trying to beat someone. It's on the top of the hill. Case in point, my favorite moment – I've said this before on the podcast, but my favorite moment in a race, in any any of my own races – And I've run a lot of different kinds of races, different situations. This one just happened to be the local 10K kind of thing, right? Small race, um, but they had a little bit of prize money available. And so people would come out and try to win that prize money. And I'm in this race and there's a big hill. Um, This is a 10K. There's a big hill. It's about halfway. It's a little more than halfway. It's like with two miles to go, right? Pretty steep and fairly long hill. So we hit that hill. There's three of us together. Um, One is kind of starting to trail. So there's really two of us side by side. We hit that hill and we're going up it at about the same like neither of us are really trying to push up this hill um but definitely like it's it's we're we're cognizant of each other and and not trying to lose the ground right i we get to the top of the hill and i surge right over the top actually was like right as we were getting to the top right quite a little bit before. This is very deliberate, by the way. And I pick it up as soon as we start approaching the top of the hill and over it. And I kid you not, the guy next to me, I'll never forget it. He goes, no, 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 <laughs> Aloud in the race. And I knew at that moment I had him beat. We still had two miles left to go but I knew I had him beat. Is
0: that like a Shia LaBeouf thing?
1: It kind of felt like it. Is that like his a, name?
0: N- Am I saying it right? N-
1: Shia LaBeouf in the- Yeah, yeah, like, he was
0: like, no, 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 no. Yeah, I mean, that's him the doing, guy, like yeah, but anyway, him.
1: we're not gonna talk about him. <laughs> so point being, um, there's you can strategize hills all day long, but if the strategy harms you, it's a bad strategy. So like in that moment, I had to be very careful to make sure that I actually had the energy to do something like that and not pay for it later. I just so happened to have that in that race. I've done that in other instances where it backfired. But
0: I do want to mention one other scenario where there is more of a difference while you're running. So there's lots of hills up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. There is it won't be consistent effort necessarily in that instance, because there for some people who are good downhill runners, you are recovering on the downhills. Yeah. And so it isn't going to be like a easy sustained effort or I'm sorry, a pressed sustained effort during the whole time. There will be variations. True. So there's, there's lots of scenarios to consider. There
1: are lots of scenarios. And uh, let's talk about things like the Boston Marathon course everyone's always talking about, right? Um, with that downhill stuff, early stages in the Boston course, that downhill stuff harms people more than the uphill stuff later on. Mostly because they're just not their, their muscle recruitment isn't capable of handling that much downhill running no matter what the effort is. And so then you're, you're blowing out muscles in your upper leg, like quads and such, because you're just running downhill and your body wasn't ready to handle that much. Like that's, that's the kind of stuff you you can hear all the horror stories about Hills from everyone. Point being preparation is a big piece in it. Lorenda, in your case, you run on hills a lot. So preparation is kind of natural, which is wonderful. It doesn't mean that like, you know, what it it means is that hills are not going to affect you as negatively on the whole than they will other runners. Um, So that's great. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you should take too many risks either. (laughs) So play the conservative strategies, knowing that it'll be easier for you than it would be if you weren't running on hills all the time.
0: Well, thank you, Lorenda. That was a great question.
1: All right, the next question here, this one's from Craig. Craig actually sent us a whole series of questions. Um, and I, I always appreciate that. He was basically like, here are the different things that are on my mind and there's very interesting stuff. So what we got to do here is we kind of got to pick, all right, so which one will we answer right now? And then if we've got time, we'll come back to another one um, if we have time. But I I enjoy that. And so mm-hmm. if, if you're kind of feeling that way, like there's just all these things I've been wondering about, throw it all in one email. And uh, we'll, we'll get to the ones when we can, what we can, certainly. So Craig, appreciate it. This one, I really wanted to answer on air. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to see it, Andy. I, I threw it in here myself. Um, so the question is about level of effort and how to accurately rate effort perception. Okay. Ah, That's the context okay. here. So here's what here's what Craig is writing about Strava and other systems. Have you rate your level of effort after you, when you enter a run? Right. And it's, it's again, it's relative perceived effort, the RPE rating. Um, so it's like a zero to 10 scale. This is what he's writing. You get most out of the training logs is the best to put the level of effort, uh, that you exerted or how you felt at the end of the run. Are those the same thing, the different things. So here's what he's asking. Um, It says rate the run when you're done. Does that mean the moment you finished and how you felt? Does that mean like your overall exertion? And so the first thing we have to say is it might depend because systems ask you to think about it in different ways sometimes, but we'll come back to that. So there's more. For example, if I walked a dog or, you know, like a slow jog, um, my my level of effort is a one. Uh, Now, he says 95% of the time I feel like it was a one at the end of the effort. But every once in a while, it's like, yeah, it was more like a two. Like, I, like by the time I got done, it was even, a, it was a short jog, but by the time I got done, it was like, I'm ah, feeling like breathing harder than normal. For like a minimum effort one, but let's let's get on to some other examples because it helps with more context. So he he does this um, for every single run, and his point here is it's sometimes harder depending on the type of run. For example, the long run. Yeah. His long run is is the one that he and I have, have talked about before. This has come up in interactions, and he says, uh, "Let's say I have a hundred and fifty minute long run. Great, we recommend that quite a bit. Um, I plan to run it as an easy effort, so it might be a three or a four, but." Later over the course of the run, things aren't moving as well. I'm tiring. So what do I do here? Maybe I slow the pace down a little bit, um, just to try to keep the effort even and not have to increase effort to sustain it, which we've talked about that too. Um, at the end, sometimes I feel like my body, uh, is more taxed than I intended for like a three or four. So I'd have to rate it like a six or a seven. Um, so here's then, how this question comes in. Is it best then in that moment to record how I feel right at the end or to record how I felt like I was exerting over the, the summation of the run? Um, and that is a fascinating great question. Question. That, we we've said great question about every single know, one because they're sorry. all great questions. But it is fascinating. Uh, awesome, um,
0: awesome question.
1: <laughs> so here's here's kind of he gave he gave more like here's how I'm thinking about it. I've got things to think about like how the muscles feel, uh, how I'm feeling cardiovascularly, and then also like mental and emotional energy, focus, and stuff like that. And so it's all part of it. And you're right now any any system that is doing this to try to really truly thoroughly address this with due diligence is going to separate some of those factors. So you're going to have a rating about your mental emotional energy and focus. You're going to have a rating about how your body felt. You're going to have a rating about like your posture and your strength orientation, your structure, but no systems do that because they don't want to Make you do. I mean, let's think about it. Most people are not going to want to enter that many different data points when they finish runs, so they they take the path of least resistance here and give you one rating and hope that you just kind of lump it in. Well, we have some thoughts, as you might guess.
0: Well, I thought it was interesting that in our episode with Molly Bookmeyer, she actually talks about her strategy with recording her running journal. And one of them, one of the one of the key points that she talked about during our episode with her was that at, she did write something at the end of the day, like how she felt after the run. And, like after
1: the run, or like
0: no, I'm sorry, at the end of the day. Yeah, after that's the different. run. So yeah. I felt funky the rest of the day, or like some things were like bothering me here and there or I just generally felt more fatigued than I should have for that effort and at the end of the day she would make a note about that
1: yeah that's actually that's something you didn't specifically ask about that angle as well Craig but um it, what about how I am rating things outside of the running time and that's <laughs> that's yeah. fascinating like but I think through the day how did I feel you know, that's going to matter because it's something like a long run. I felt pretty tired at the end of that run, but the rest of the day I just kept dragging felt like I couldn't really like kind of get motivated to do anything. And I was just unproductive. Like those are bad signs, but that doesn't necessarily, we can't measure that in the run itself. Exactly. So we need that additional information. That's yeah. cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess when I hear all of this, Craig, I, I am, um, first of all, inspired to keep track of more things in my own <laughs> running. Uh, I think this is an excellent conversation that's edifying all of us, perhaps. Mm. But I think the point after your run to record, because it's right it's right there, it's, easy, it's easily accessible. That's, this is going to help you with your intuition as a runner. So you, fi- you conclude the run and you rate the effort.
1: Yes. So this is where now to answer you very directly, there's actually a correct answer to what you're asking here, Craig, in terms of how physiology works. And that is simply this. And training effort, training stimuli, um, in principle, physical exertion is cumulative. And so what that essentially means is that the work I'm doing over the course of a period of time, let's give it 60 minutes, um, the work I'm doing over the course of 60 minutes accumulates in my system throughout the entire time so that when I get done with that 60 minutes, that moment then marks how much stimulus I have accumulated in that over the course of that. So my exertion, then in that sense, um, we we try to think about it in terms of like you exert with the understanding of how much you have in duration to do and how much energy you want to expend in terms of by the end of the effort. So if I'm running an easy long run, for instance, um, to give it an easy effort and say like, uh, so a three rating is like, in my mind, that that's when I'm exerting an easy effort, it's comfortable, I finish and I feel like that was no problem, that was easy, right? So that means that I have to be able to say it was a three in the last five minutes because it's cumulative. And so that means I have to be lower than a three in the first half, potentially. Um, It kind of depends because the better conditioned you are aerobically and the better stronger you are, the more strong you are, the stronger you are um, musculoskeletally, then the longer you can sustain a single range of effort without it uh, accumulating toward higher degrees of fatigue, like fatiguing your system too much. So the example there is if I if I have not been running at all whatsoever and I go out and I jog for two hours, by the end of that two hours, I'm giving a substantially higher effort than a jog, even if my pace is even slower than when I started. If I have not trained for like a year, <laughs> right. will never be easy. Right. So yeah. in principle, then Craig, to kind of underscore the point here, um your rating at the end based on that moment Is the accurate representation of the training stimulus that you received, which means the intent of those ratings in most instances, not always, it kind of depends on the system, but in most instances, the intent is to, to capture the degree of training stimulus that that effort was um, and how, how how you felt in terms of that exertion uh, to achieve that training stimulus. So since that's cumulative, then you should rate it in a cumulative mindset. And so I'm going to take then how I feel right now when I finish the run uh, in the last five minutes is usually kind of the way you think about it. How did I feel at that point? And that captures the essence of that contribution to my current training physiology.
0: And I think too, the added data point that I really like and I want to start implementing at the end of the day, like how did I feel throughout the day afterwards can help inform you if you were perhaps feeling that correctly or you were able to recognize what the effort truly was. Mm. Because if it is truly easy but at the end of the day I'm like achy and fatigued and all of that, then I have to analyze, okay, was, was the effort... Is this actually the effort I thought it was? Potentially. Well,
1: yeah. Or if there's if, more in
0: life than just running, right? That can make you tired, but
1: <laughs> and that's kind of the point. Is like I, that felt so easy when I was doing it until about 30 minutes later when I was done, and then things started to change. You know, like things like that. And that's just it's always a fascinating thing because then you start to add in things like okay, hydration matters there. Um, and if my hydration is poor, then my system mm, recovers more poorly. From an effort and that's a piece of it micronutrients is another piece of it if i have bad levels of vitamins or electrolytes in my system um,
0: macros you're just well yeah not mac- fueled well after but those
1: macros are the obvious ones most people yeah. think about yeah. most people don't think about some of the finer points but the 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 case is made here that we should take in more information than uh, so we you, Craig, necessarily do. Craig, so we appreciate I, I that. like but. this
0: conversation. And I do think that that's a good point to seeing what things in our day... Because a lot of times we'll just attribute it all to the run. So I'm glad that you brought that up. We'll say that it was the run and it was the effort. Well, maybe not. Maybe it's because after I got home, I didn't do anything. And, and I had to attend to my kids right away. So maybe I'm stiff. Didn't eat, maybe something, eat, didn't exactly, stretch, didn't eat something. Didn't stretch. Yeah. So I didn't I didn't feel my body afterwards. There are so many considerations. So I do, I'm do. i glad that you brought that up. Because sometimes it really isn't the effort that we gave that makes us feel the ramifications. It's more the recovery, which is a huge component component to our training
1: it's a really interesting so you take take a couple examples this is getting a slightly sidetracked but it's fascinating to reflect on um race scenarios oftentimes people report feeling better after a higher degree of effort like at a race than they do in workout training runs and so you take in two examples my traditional day where i might wake up early do my hard effort run and then go sit in my office chair and work for the next eight hours right And maybe I did a little bit of, you know, light stretching or something, but then I just go sit down for eight hours and I just feel bad. But then I go race on a Saturday morning, much higher effort because it's a race and I'm trying to really get out there and give it right. And, but then throughout the day, I, I, you know, I feel decent. I'm hanging with my friends or my family and we're about the town, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, here's the difference in almost every instance there, there's other things too, but after the race, I'm walking around for a while. I don't just sit for eight hours afterward. I'm usually eating and drinking things because they've just got stuff everywhere to eat and Props drink. Props to great races so you that just do that. grab it, and then you're eating and drinking things. And you're walking around, which is keeping the blood flowing and circulating well. And it's not surprising that you tend to feel better, even though you might have given a substantially higher effort. So that's one example. But – Craig, your question is wonderful. And yes, you need to rate it based on how you're feeling at the end, even though it seems like it is not an accurate representation of the total. The end is the representation of the cumulative total training stimulus. So that's that's the way we want to try to think about those types of ratings in most instances, depends on what they're telling you to do.
0: Thanks for the great question, Craig. Question from Haley, how to implement the run-walk strategy in a race and what mm. needs to be done in training to prepare to use this method when it comes to race day.
1: So there's a little bit of context because Haley, yeah. you've been using run-walk some in training, yes. right? To rehabilitate an mm-hmm. uh, injury. So... Is that a viable strategy outside of rehabilitation protocols? Right. That's kind of the question here. That, Absolutely. And it asking.
0: is uh, well-developed and it has been tested that the Galloway method, it's, as it's, it's now called. It's got a name. Yes,
1: it's called Gallow walking. walking yeah. From Jeff is Galloway. A, is
0: a very valid way to race. And I guess we'll talk a little bit about it here and what are some of the advantages to doing this kind of race strategy and what can be done in training to support this.
1: Yeah, the first thing to note is um, almost always there's like an, there's a stigma attached to run-walk where it's like ultra-runners do that or people who aren't as serious do that. Um, and Jeff Galloway himself disproved that in his uh, 216 and change marathon <laughs> where he walked every mile. Is that what it was? Every mile. Uh, yes. Okay, there you go. You've got it. In 1980. So um, 216 marathon in 1980 means more than it does today. Also, he did it with walk breaks. Now, you have to keep in mind, Back in, like, the 70s and 80s, most world-class marathoners walked regularly. Maybe it's because he was doing it. <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe. At a minimum, they walked through aid stations. That was just common practice. Yeah. Walk for a little bit, grab the cup, get a good drink, and then you pick it back up and keep going. Bill Rogers is a great example of that. Bill Rogers was, like, a 210 marathoner. I don't remember what his best is, but he was, like, a 210 marathoner. And yet he walked in every single race, always. Um, and so there's a, there's a layer of that. Galloway specifically made an effort to try to find uh, a kind of like a best balance in terms of how frequently and how much time spent walking as you're training and racing. Mm -hmm.
0: So in racing, the reason that people will do it, it it eases fatigue and the overuse of muscles because it's changing up what you're doing. It can prevent you from unintentionally compensating too. This is just a thought that I had, not something I found in his resources, but it can prevent you from doing that because it gives you a moment to check in again and also pushing through some asymmetries and pain that you might've ignored because you just are so determined to keep on running.
1: Yeah. Think about it like a neuromuscular reset, like a frequent neuromuscular reset uh, because the, the stopping, or it's not really stopping, the slowing to a walk. Um, turns all of the firing protocols off, right? It changes them. They're not off because you're still moving, but it changes them. And then when you accelerate back into a run, it resets them. And so in an instance where you're fatiguing, that reset puts you back into... Most likely, it's not always going to do that every, every, by guarantee, but it's going to put you back into sound firing patterns, which we've been talking a fair bit about, mm-hmm. as we talked about our running form uh, episode last week.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in training, the run walk can help you complete a higher mileage training week with less fatigue. You're actually going to be doing some of that time, which we, we say time, this says mileage, because that's, you know, it depends on which way you record your running, but it, it will allow for you for more time on feet. If you is, have
1: more time to give to it. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: And then a couple of notes that I wanted to mention about this strategy that is sometimes overlooked or missed is that you need to be able to walk at a deliberate effort because not it's like not like a rest. A- <laughs> it's not like, oh, I'm going to stop and put my hands on my knees and, you know, it because the run part shouldn't be so strenuous again, you have to gauge your effort for the whole run that you have or the whole race that you have. So it's a deliberate walk effort because... If you're going to be using this in training, your heart rate needs to stay high enough for an aerobic stimulus in training. If mm. that is the goal of the run, sometimes it will be like if you're rehabilitating from injury. It is really just the musculoskeletal advantages and being able to extend the amount of time that you're on feet. So you might your heart rate might come down if it's not a time for the aerobic training. But if you're-
1: so, is it a correct synthesis then this this point you're making, Andy, that the method is not viewed as as rest, right. as breaks, but as rather as a disruption in your rhythm.
0: Yes. Thank you for saying that. Mm. That is absolutely the case because it's not a stroll in the park. It is a, it's a I mean, it could
1: be if you're running if the New you're York in the Marathon park. or something. Yeah. <laughs> in
0: Central Park. Yeah. So just thinking of it that way and not as an interval, because I think that some people get hung up on that because it can be written in literature as a two minute interval, so to speak. It is not what people see as interval training this is this is doing a consistent effort and then having that deliberate walk effort and being able to continue that on with the measured i mean i'm saying this again (laughs) i said it already but having it be measured so don't call it maybe don't call it an interval if that makes it more of a temptation to run faster interval
1: is a conceptual word not a a specific prax- practice, but, um, yeah. So you've got an example here that, uh, some, some research yeah. to kind of underscore the point.
0: Yeah. So, uh, in a 2014 study in the Journal of Science and Medicine, they compared the race results of marathoners who used run walk strategy to those who ran continuously. I don't know how many, I don't know what their end results were. So take it out with a great We can salt. talk about
1: methodology in a minute, but yeah.
0: The run-walk subjects took a 60-second walk break approximately every one and a half miles for the entire race. Okay. Both groups had similar finish times. The run-only athletes finished in an average of 4.07 and the walk run-walk group averaged 4.14 marathon.
1: Now, what they did not say is what were their prior best marathons? Yeah, yeah. What, what were their... Because if you have a situation here where it's like, well, we had... 20 marathoners who have all run 415 and 20 marathoners who have all run 410 and, you know, they ran, they ended up running faster if they did the run walk or they ran, you know, so they don't, they don't, the methodology is super unclear. And that's what I meant by like With final the,
0: results. Like but, it faster or slower than theirs. Right. Not, and that,
1: we yeah. don't actually care about that data point. It's irrelevant to us. The next one is the interesting one.
0: Yeah. The biggest benefit was in the level of fatigue and muscle pain reported by the study participants. Less than 5% of the run-walk athletes said that they felt extreme exhaustion compared with more than 40% of the run-only groups.
1: Okay. So that is that is the key fascinating point. Yeah. Um, so now, of course, we don't know. Did all of the run-walkers uh, give substantially lower effort than they normally do on a marathon? And so they were like, of course, well, they were less fatigued. A- we don't know that. But we have to assume when with these kinds of studies that you're trying to take um, – as close to an apples to apples comparison as you possibly can. And so if their methodology in this instance, it's not terribly abundantly clear. What we have to then do is apply. What's the principle that we would take away here. The assumption is, and it's held true in anecdotal in instances consistently, which is someone who does a given effort at the run walk at a similar end result to someone who does that same effort, well, seven not different. at a run walk, uh, said similar, um, they tend to report less fatigue less soreness afterward as well and so the run walk method seems to yield lower total fatigue uh, and and we know why so it it stands up to the test of how is that possible physiologically it's because of that muscle recruitment economy factors as you're changing between the run and the walk piece you're having a number of benefits stacked on top of each other through the race Mm -hmm. Now this is, this is then in practice. What is it that someone's actually doing? Because they said they're 60 seconds. That's a long walk break. Most of the gala walking approach in general is more like five minutes to 30 seconds or four minutes to 30 seconds. It's in that range. Um, And so you're walking for only 30 seconds at a time out of every four or five minutes Uh, with our own athletes. When we have used this approach, we've used it for For various different reasons for racing when we've used this approach. And again, for a lot of different reasons, um, we tend to do something between five minutes to 30 seconds up to a mile to one minute. It's, it's that window is what we use. Um, we never walk for more than a minute. And most of the time it's shorter than that um, in terms of our recommendation. So you're not spending a ton of time, total time walking. And the goal there, the assumption there is that your periods while running are a little bit faster than they normally would be over the course of an average pace for a race. Yeah. A little bit.
0: And if a lot of people like to walk through aid stations And I think that it, that can be a beneficial thing, especially if you're having a hard time getting your hydration and nutrition. I would recommend though, keep moving Mm, because a lot of times there's this tendency to stop and chat or whatever. Well, the
1: stop is a bad thing in terms of the approach, by the way, if you completely stopping motion, um,
0: your body thinks you're done.
1: (laughs) Well, there's that. It also is. It's harder to go to a complete stop and then increase again. Um, going from a walk to a jog, is substantially lower in terms of how neuromuscularly what you're asking of your body in terms of mental and emotional demand and just, you know, the effort itself. It's easier to go from a walk to a jog than go from like a stop to a mm-hmm. anything, stop to walk even. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that applies there. Momentum is important. But yeah, so there's, there's some other potential concerns, things yeah. to avoid at least.
0: I had mentioned that runners will often go too hard. And that's in racing and in training. Go too hard during these intervals. Oh,
1: because you think that you've like rested and so you can push harder. Well, you're not really resting. So don't think of it that way.
0: (laughs) And you can go harder than you would if you are sustaining an effort. But it still has to be the appropriate effort for how long your total is going to be.
1: Yeah, and I should say it this way. This might be a better way to explain that. Um, The thought here is that if you're running by effort and you've scrapped your watch, which you should anyway because that's what everybody should do. Um, (laughs) If you've done that, then what you will likely find in the run-walk method is that though you thought you were giving the same effort, and and I say thought you were because you, you are, though you're giving exertionally the same effort through those run periods with walk breaks than if you just ran the whole time, you're going to end up going faster, especially in the mid to late stages of the race, by having that walk break disruption and so the same effort yields a better result and that's the goal that we aspire toward as runners with these types of things is get the effort right and then the results will follow but in the run walk method we can actually contrive a method that might help yield those results depending on the situation
0: and this is another uh, drawback, a hang-up, and I had mentioned it briefly as well, but during training, if you are healthy and the goal is an aerobic stimulus, people often will not give enough effort to maintain the correct stimulus during the walk period because they're not walking deliberately. So that that's another piece of it. Or they're going too long during the walk part for their level of fitness. And sometimes there can be a wrong interval and in ch- interval exchange like we had I just kind of alluded to like if you're going too long for the walk that could possibly be detrimental to your overall performance
1: yeah I think the only thing to really be careful about in terms of the interval frequencies and amounts of time is don't make the walk too long never more than 60 seconds um, in this type of a scenario as we're describing because if you're doing if you're using this appropriately the walk should not lower your heart rate too much It'll lower it some, but you really don't want it going too low because then it actually actually enter, physiologically, you enter a rest period. You don't want to fully enter a rest period.
0: And we're not saying here that walking isn't a really good form of exercise and even a great cross train for running. No, it's just lower so training, so training If stimulus. we're talking, right, for this, yeah, and in using this method, we're giving you best practices and it only helps you in training if you can increase the volumes as well during so that you're able to run more and more. Because even Galloway himself, when he was doing his marathon that was super fast, like crazy, crazy fast in this method, he was running longer durations with a shorter rest. So that's kind of the goal of it eventually as well. But all that to say, this is a really effective use of the run-walk method or, I guess, implication of it for a race, because a lot of us do think like we shouldn't, we shouldn't be walking during a race. But the fact of the matter is, is that you can have tremendous performance.
1: So the last comment that I'll make about it is, um, that there's a case, a use case that this comes even more highly recommended. And it is simply this, if you have not been able to prepare for a long race as you ought to, in terms of like training volumes. So if you're gonna run a marathon, and you haven't really been able to train at volumes that you should in order to handle the marathon well, then you definitely should use the run walk because it's going to be even more valuable for you in that situation where you're not fully prepared for that long of a race. So there you go. If, if you have under-trained for your next long race, use the run walk, do the four minutes to 30 seconds or five minutes to 30 seconds, and you will be glad you did.
0: And you could be proud of it because a two sixteen thirty five marathoner also it's not used a, this it's, same.
1: It's not like a less serious no, runners do not. this thing. Um, and as Galloway says, when you interview him, he's like, "I think everybody should be doing it." So, <laughs> maybe and not, not. Maybe not. Elliot th- Kipchoge in the Olympics. I don't know. He hasn't specifically said that, but he might actually feel that way. So, I wouldn't be surprised. All right. Well, at, you know, here's the thing. We have another question we'd like to get to, but we are out of time and so we will bring it up bring it back on the next one and certainly keep sending in those questions because uh we'll do this again at the end of the month every month and we appreciate the chance to answer some of your thoughts
0: should i say it again thank you all for your great questions
1: were they were they great (laughs) questions were all the questions great they were all great they were great interesting fantastic they were also fascinating they were great and fascinating Uh and interesting so (laughs) we've done that and you are glad for it
0: We're glad for you. now
1: we can get on to the world of running. To start it off with some A to Z runner updates from our crew. We had a number of races again in the last weekend. The Laker Loop Half Marathon saw a few Mark, Julie, and Kristen running. And Julie finished third in her age group. Congrats on that. Congrats. And then in the Arcadia Days 5K, Bill first in age group. Well done, Bill, and uh, very nearly personal best time. So that's always exciting. Tri Boulder Sprint Triathlon for Jax uh, was first in his age group as well.
0: Congrats, Jax.
1: So good, good finishes. This is this was a competitive time for us. Yeah. Very fun.
0: Speaking of competitive. Oh
1: my goodness. <laughs> my word. Okay, so uh, let's talk about Monaco. Let's talk about it. Monaco Diamond League is generally known as, like, the one where the crazy stuff happens. This year, it's just been all of them, which is abnormal. Usually, the Diamond League sees a kind of – Andy's getting goosebumps. The Diamond (laughs) League sees a kind of acceleration toward the championship season in the summer, and – and it usually has a fairly slow start. This year, for some reason, well, I guess we know why. Uh, but this year, it was not. This year, it's been crazy the whole time uh, because of the likes of Faith Kipyegon and Jacob Ingebrigtsen breaking records everywhere. But as it were, this meet, yet still, was true to its reputation. <laughs> so we got to yeah. talk about this. Let's start with the men's 800 which I think it might've been actually the least exciting event of it. And it was still exciting. It was still exciting, but I'm only saying that because of some of the things you're going to hear about later. So in the men's 800, um, pacers went out a little faster than they were supposed to, which is, you know, always means that people just let them go and no one goes with them. Except this time, Marco Arop of Canada went with them and was, had a huge gap on the field as a result. Cause everyone else was like, this is crazy. We don't want to go that fast. Um, And it it worked out fairly well for me. He still finished third. They did catch him about 200 to go. They started gaining on him. And in the last hundred, two guys passed him, but he held well. And still finished well. As a matter of fact, he almost still ended up second. Um, and so it was uh, it was a very competitive run. And oh, uh, we saw world-leading times. We saw a uh, number of guys under 144 in a single race, which is always exciting. At this point, it's clear that uh, people are ramping it up. So Wycliffe yeah. Kenyamal of Kenya won the race. And uh, not surprising when uh, it comes down to a finish, he's got a good finish. And so he ran a world-leading time, 143, which is always uh, – Blazing fast, and then Algeria had a good showing. Algeria's Simani Mula was second, and then Algeria's Jamel Sejati was fourth. Who okay. is prior to this race the Diamond League leader? Um, now, Kinyamal is the Diamond okay. League leader, was meaning Kenymo he has the most points.
0: the one who's 29? No. No? Uh, okay, that's a different race. Uh,
1: different race. Um, Kinyamal's uh, been around for a little bit. He's he's not a surprise when he wins races like this. Marco Aropp finished third, as I mentioned, in a strong 143 and change. And then USA's Bryce Hopple was the last guy under 144 uh, in a season best time. Um, and he was sixth. So six guys ran under 144 in this one race. Amazing. Uh, it's it pretty exciting.
0: Very exciting.
1: But... It gets way, way better.
0: <laughs> but was anything ever as exciting as the women's mile? I the, mean...
1: This... Okay, first. I have to say this first. Um, this race had... I don't know how many people. I, I think I listed it. How many people finished the race? Yeah, it's listed. Okay. Um, 13 women finished the race, right? And every single one of them ran a personal best. That I, I've never seen that happen before. Insanity. Every single... Finisher. Every single
0: one? I thought there was one that didn't
1: No They all did? All of the, Well yeah because the one was a debut oh. Remember so we weren't sure right. right So that counts as a personal best It does So yeah. every single finisher And the only people who didn't finish by the way were the Pacers So everyone who started the race with the intent of running it Ran a personal best <laughs> What are magical? the chances?
0: Super magical But it
1: actually still gets even better Yes So for, before we give results Andy before personal best Just talk about Talk about who is in this race
0: Oh We had the Look likes of Laura Mule so, we British have,
1: champion, Laura Muir. Yes.
0: Sierra Meg Megan?
1: McGeehan. McGeehan. So, Irish champion, mm-hmm. McGeehan.
0: Venezuelan champ,
1: Jocelyn, Jocelyn Bray. Bray.
0: Australian champ, <laughs> Jessica Hull. And U.S. champ, Nikki Hiltz. And world champion, Faith Kibiegan. And world record holder.
1: So, that, that's just half of the field right there, okay? All of those names are champions in their champions. own discipline. That's... <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it's highly anticipated, of course, because oh, Faith Kipyegon again, was going for the world record. You'll remember that she achieved that both the 1,500-meter record and the 5,000-meter yeah. record which was a surprise,
1: so to Faith her could, as well. Faith could be, yeah, Faith could be a Attempted and achieved two world records already this season. Right and now, she says, "I'm going for another she one." She
0: calls it out, and it is a very attainable record for her because mm-hmm. her yes. 1500 meter world record would demonstrate her ability to break this record as well.
1: So the the world record uh, that Sifan Hassan set at 4:12 was kind of considered to be a little bit weak. Coming into this race, um, simply because even Sifan Hassan has run 1500s at a much faster end result pace than that 412 mile. But the mile has competed so rarely that it's just one that people are like, eh, it, the record will probably go down again. But just no one seems to be attempting it right now. And so uh, anyway, Faith Kipyegon says, I'm going for it. And here's the field of racers that are right. with her. The
0: pace, <laughs> the, the pace was uh, a bit hot. For Wendy tried to hang on, but only made it a couple minutes. <laughs> so it was, Kipi a, it Agon, was the Kipi
1: show. It was. It was two minutes in, she was alone, and just looked like she was owning the world.
0: <laughs> well, in a way she was. I'm mean, sure about two. <laughs> at one point, she was about ten
1: seconds ahead, almost ten seconds ahead of the rest of the field mm-hmm. in a world class mile race.
0: Right, right. So with a lap to go, <laughs> Kipyeagon does as she has done before and she just cranks on this field giving a 10 second gap and in the mile in a field like this it looks insane like I it mean, just it, looks absolutely
1: it was something
0: crazy like well, she's in another league i will say
1: the unfortunate thing about that is the cameras were all on her i mean of course she's attempting a world record you couldn't even see anyone else I wanted to see she's what was so going far on. ahead because yeah.
0: at one point Elise Cranny was in front of Nikki Hiltz, so I want to know like what happened. Which is relevant. We didn't time. even
1: mention earlier because Elise Cranny's also a US champ. She's just not a US champ in this event. <laughs> right, so right. Yep. she's a B team runner in this. <laughs> <battle>. <laughs> no, she's not. Uh,
0: but it, it was. A, I want to see what happened yeah. like the rest of the race. Yeah. Well,
1: we couldn't, so we had to wait to find the results, which they didn't show. By the way, we were watching this on screen. They didn't show the results. Initially, you got to see like the first few finishers, and then they moved on to a different event. So we had to go look them up and be like, "What actually happened?" Okay. Yes. Well, here's what. We'll happened. continue
0: on with what happened.
1: What did Faith Kipriyan run, Andy?
0: Faith Kipriyan ran 407.64 for a new world record, nearly five, five seconds. seconds under Sifan Hassan's <laughs> previous world record. That's so fast! Winning by seven seconds.
1: Seven-second win in a world-class field, and here's here's now how it goes. This is okay. So, Faith Kipyegon broke the world record. There were seven records set, new records, new records. Set.
0: Are you ready for this? Seven Are you new to records this?
1: set in one race.
0: It's I was telling Zach I'm like, I almost wish these were spread out and it wasn't all in one race because I want to enjoy it longer. Oh
1: no, this was just so exciting. <laughs> but, we got to it talk makes about it. It,
0: it makes it one of the greatest miles. Well, it is the greatest mile in history.
1: yeah, okay. so Kiara McGeehan in second place, which is by the way amazing finish to to outkick a field like this and big, she finishes second
0: yeah, in a big PB of four seconds earning her the new Irish record four fourteen point five eight.
1: Okay, third place for Winnie Hailu held on, even though she went out hot trying to stay on Kip Yegan, she couldn't hold it. She still held on for third place in her debut. Debut. <laughs> for Ethiopia, by the way.
0: Mm-hmm, running 414.79, now that wasn't a record.
1: Not That's not an Ethiopian record, but. but
0: her debut, okay. <laughs> which is amazing. Forgivable. <laughs> and Hailu is such a ambitious runner too. It was great to see her out front. For that period of time, trying to hang with the Pacer. So, very bold race there, for a debut especially.
1: Fourth place, from Great Britain, Laura Muir.
0: Keeps getting better. It just She keeps getting better. It's fantastic. 4.15.24, which was a three-second personal best. I don't best. think I
1: have to read like, all the tenths and hundredths. Okay, <laughs> This all right. is going to take but a while. this is We're a British gonna... <laughs> record,
0: okay? British
1: record, three-second personal best, okay? Fifth place, Jessica Hull from Australia
0: again keeps getting better three second personal best which is huge and all uh, oceana and australian record
1: incredible amazing and sixth then, place this is our big news here Nikki in this country Hiltz from usa mm-hmm.
0: four sixteen point three five. i said this you decimal, got sorry. well because it's but a it's ours. a usa
1: it's the north it's american ours. record it's
0: north american okay. and u.s record Two check this out Hilt
1: just broke a 38 year old record Mary Slaney set the USA record in, well, I we got to do the math again now, 1985. All right. And at the time, it was the world record, too. So 38 years have gone by and no one's broken that record. And Hiltz just did so.
0: Mm-hmm. Which, I'm excited to see what Hiltz does at the world championships now that Hiltz stuck it, 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 their nose in that.
1: We'll see. Well, I mean, sixth place. So. You have to run a North American record to finish sixth place in this race. Incredible race. I don't even know what to think about that. Yeah. Okay, so Hilt's North American USA record. Seventh place, Melissa Courtney Bryant from Great Britain. Not a record because, you know, Laura Muir was in front of her, but. (laughs) Right. Seven second personal best. Yeah. Okay. Eighth place, Elise Cranny, USA, would have broken the previous 38 year old Mm -hmm. record so we said hiltz broke the record in fact there were two americans who broke the previous north american usa record in one race so 38 years go by no one touches it and in 2023 two people do it at once it's (laughs) It's amazing amazing. wow so at least cranny by the way at least cranny's not a miler She's, right. if you recall, the double U.S. champion in the 5,000, 10,000.
0: So not surprising she's fast. And but she shows
1: fast? up and, and runs a U.S. record. This in the, fast. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And this is
0: a five-second personal best, by the way. Yep. That's which something. Which means that Elise Cranny is in excellent form for the world championships
1: absolutely and ninth place abby caldwell from australia not an australian record you know because <laughs> because but jessica it's a hall is 17
0: second personal best we have to mention it 17, 17
1: second personal best and
0: it just makes you wonder if maybe she doesn't run this event very often well of
1: course not but the point is she was in the right race at the right time 10th <laughs> place esther guerrero from spain in the smallest personal best she snuck in she ran like six-tenths of a second personal best. But, but, you
0: know, in a mile, a one-second PB is still oh, yeah. something to be celebrated because it's such that. a short race. It's still a personal best, yeah. right. So, ele- place. 11th
1: place, Bernice Clayette Merle from France, which I know I said her name wrong because she's French. But new French record.
0: French record by in a three-second personal best.
1: All right. 12th place, Agade Guillermot. Again, French, so I know I said her name wrong.
0: I think it's probably Mo because the T would be. I'm silent. sure it is. Mm-hmm.
1: Four second personal best, and would have you know would have been a French record, right? but, but but she was country second woman, woman ahead of her, yeah.
0: got that, snatched it, and then thirteenth. Must be mentioned. Last place in the race, and, and yet <laughs> an exciting story and an exciting record here. Jocelyn Bray ran 4.27 for a South American Venezuelan record. This is a 16 second personal best, but then not only that. This is now what, how many records?
1: So she holds now the, does she hold the 800? I actually can't remember we she holds have, the 800. Wait. She holds the 1,500 mile, 3,000, 5,000 South American records. Many
0: records. Yeah. Lots of records. And the world champion, the
1: duathlon. Yeah.
0: All right. World champion, So
1: that's Brea. Yep. Now that that rounds it out. So the, in the women's mile, 13 finishers, 13 personal best times. And I didn't actually count them, but I thought it was seven records, but that looks like it's six records. One two, three, four, five, six, seven records, including seven the records. world
0: record, World, yep. seven, Can't forget that. Records. So seven records.
1: So 50% of the finishers in that race just set a new national or area. And record. this
0: probably is the only time we have ever, and probably will ever mention every single person because every single person was, yeah, we don't usually notoriety. give you,
1: as you know, we don't usually give you the whole result right. because we
0: just don't have time. Not that we don't appreciate every runner who right. sticks their nose in it, but
1: but when even the last finisher in the event set a national area record and a massive personal best, we, we got to do it. We got to do it. Got to do it. Okay. By the way, that's Faith Kipiegan now, three world records in three attempts this season. Um, and, of course, everyone's like, is it even possible for anyone else in the world to beat her? And, of course, the answer is, yeah, it is. It's always possible. she's not going to be running a world record time at the world cha- – I mean, she could, actually. It's possible. But she's not. <laughs> she's not going to run a world record time at the world championships. And she's not the only one out there who can kick a mad is last lap. Is so.
0: Sifan Hassan running the We don't know world what she's doing yet.
1: We don't know what she's doing yet.
0: From road to track?
1: I'm sure she's running the track, but I don't know what specifically. Mm. It might be out there. I don't believe it is, though. All right, next up, men's 5,000. So the the, the men's 5,000 in the Diamond League has just been so much fun this season because every race is crazy competitive.
0: And also, like, who's going to win? We right.
1: really don't know. A different one, a different individual has won almost every, well, no, every single time. I think every every single time a different individual has run, has won. And these times have all been crazy fast. But who's running fast keeps changing as well. Yes. And they've all been close finishes. So Two fun. or three guys in a sprint finish every time. So they just, just want to give really us a show exciting. maybe. <laughs> they are putting on a show. These uh, these international 5,000 meter runners. So here's how this goes. They set the lights. Apparently they someone asked for world record. So they set the lights to slowly accelerate up to – the point where they, if they finished with the lights, they would run a world record. That's Joshua Cheptegay's world record. Um, and we don't know who exactly requested that, which just kind of makes it interesting too. Mm-hmm. But we do know that there were a few guys that, uh, based on recent results, may have had a chance.
0: And also how it was run. Because I think that maybe, this is my theory, that Jacob Kablimo was one of those people because he went with the Pacers. Yeah. And the lights.
1: So three guys actually went right to the front with the Rabbits. Two of the three of them likely were among those requesting this. Jacob Kaplimo from Uganda, who um had a different five thousand in a sprint finish recently where he ran twelve forty 1240 something, twelve forty one. Um Barry Huaragawi of Ethiopia, who also had a sprint finish 5,000 where he ran 1240, the world leading time currently. Um, And then we've also got in this race, Kenya's Jacob Krop, who's run 1245. We've got the Spanish record holder, Mo Katir, who's run 1250. We've got Canadian record holder, Mohamed, who's run 1247. So you see what I'm getting at, right? Ethiopian greats who are just having a great season right now, like Telahun Bekele and Hagos Geberwet, among others. Among others. So this is the field, right? Yes. So as the race goes, as we mentioned, uh, right away, three guys went straight to the front behind the pacers. That was Kiplimo and Aragawi. No surprise there. But then also 17-year-old Kuma Girma from Ethiopia was right behind Kiplimo. And I'm watching that and I'm like, I don't know. They're running like 1240 pace and his best is like 130 something. And I'm thinking that might be a little bit over his head. But he, he went for it. Yeah. He paid for it as well. It but not
0: not so badly that uh, you wouldn't say that he had a great performance.
1: He ran like thirteen forty. Oh, so
0: well, that's <laughs> kind still, of still kind fast of for
1: <laughs> paid for it pretty badly. But the case may be, uh, it was it was a valiant effort. So mm-hmm. they were on pace through about the fourth kilometer, or rather, somewhere in the midst of the fourth kilometer, and then. Um, what ends up happening is the pacer stepped off. And for a while it was like, yeah, no one's really quite Kiplimo. Kip Limo was pushing, but he wasn't quite holding steady. So Our Jacob crop, oh. Jacob crop went to the front okay. and he got back on pace. But after a while he was tiring. Apparently it was pretty hot by the way. Yes. Also. So, he, I mean,
0: they look like they were sweating. They a lot. were sweating a lot,
1: <laughs> um, but he was, he was tiring. And so when he started kind of losing the pace a little bit, Aragawi went up on his shoulder, was about to go around him, but then crop like, fended him off. He's like, no, I'm going to hold the lead, but then he couldn't still hold the pace again. So he eased off. And eventually what it amounted to is, uh, they kind of fell off the pace a little bit. Um, but not a ton. <laughs> so here's how then it goes as these races do, um, late stages of the race crop is tiring, but he's still holding the lead until with about 500, 600 meters to go. Hagos Gebrewet, who's the veteran in this field, by the way, storms to the front, just like, Boom, turns it on, goes to the front, and just starts driving hard. And that last 500 meters was just blazing. It would have been – that would have been impressive in any scenario. But coming off of the pace that they were running too. Yeah. And all these guys looked tired. They all looked like they would yeah, beat. They did. Um, like just as they're running as a pack near the late stages. And then Gebra just fires it up, and it's like they, they're like demoralized.
0: Yeah, yeah. But It was fast, but no one was like crispy looking. Like they were like –
1: Despite that fact, Gebruet goes hard to the front, and of course, Aragawi chases, and then it was actually Bekele, Tarihun Bekele, who makes chase as well behind Auregawe, and what it amounts to then is Ethiopian sweep. One, two, three. Aragawi almost caught Gebruet, but couldn't quite get him. Gebruet ran a personal best. At ben, twenty-nine it's been,
0: years old. Been like that was what I was Six
1: years yeah. since his last personal best. Yeah. So that uh, yeah, twenty-nine years old. Gebruet, personal best ran twelve forty-two to win the race. And then um Bekele uh, and Aurigawi both finished in twelve forty-two as well. And mm-hmm. so three guys within one second of each other. Mm-hmm. Ethiopian sweep, one, two, three. And then it was Mohammed Katir of Spain in fourth, twelve forty-five, in a European Spanish. Record So European record and Spanish record, which means you're kind of thinking, okay, European record. Wait, hang on a second. There's a lot of really good European runners. That, yes, he just broke Jacob Ingebrigtsen's European 5,000-meter record. That's right. Katir just broke an Ingebrigtsen record. That's yeah. awesome. All right, so that was good. And then Jimmy Gressier, by the way, of France, also set a new French record in ninth place in 1256.
0: Love it. So I've good. Been, I've been fascinated by Mo Katir. In his range of distances, and I think I was first noticing before the Olympics, the Diamond League, and just the tenacity that he runs. He doesn't look comfortable. Like not you know,
1: always. No, <laughs> every once in a while he does. I mean, in the,
0: in the early stages, but I feel like he always fires it up in the end and has like a really good kick, and you can see it. The he's dra- just got the, he's got the grimace. Yeah, he's got the grimace. Yeah,
1: his face hides nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. Well the last then event is this the last event for this one. I think it was. Yeah. The last event for this meet in terms of distance races was the men's steeple chase. And if those, if the women's mile and men's 5,000 were super exciting, the men's steeple was almost kind of like a, Oh yeah.
0: Well, exciting in a different way. Well,
1: cause <laughs> cause what it is, is none of the, like the big greats were in this race. Uh, the, you know, at least the two main ones right now. And I mean, there
0: was drama here.
1: Yeah. So what happens is now it becomes like an any man's race kind of scenario. Cause there's no like clear favorite. I love these kinds of races yeah. because now you just don't know what's going to happen. And yes, drama ensued. So you've got a young Kenyan upstart, Simon koek I'm joking when i say upstart he's the kenyan national champion um despite the fact young. that he's, he's like <laughs> 17 or 18 years old um and so just won the kenyan nationals here a week ago uh so kenyan champ coming fresh off of that victory shows up in the diamond league to make a statement and uh as it were it was abraham kibiwat his countrymen and the two of them that just kind of made the race and it was, a, it was a two-man race because of uh, the, the hot pace that they were pushing. The Pacers were out a little bit hot again. It seems like the Pacers were kind of like a little overly I think excited they're worried. at this meet.
0: I do think that a lot of times the Pacers worry, and I haven't experienced this myself, so maybe I'm off base on this, but I think that they don't want to be in the way.
1: Yeah, but in this instance, we've got the wave lights now. Yeah, And so the Pacers have to run with the blue lights, and then everyone else is trying to hit the green lights. And so you, you really just kind of know exactly where you're okay. supposed to be in this instance they're just they a little excited so um coach and kibby watt out fast and they held it well and what it came down to was simon coach with about two laps to go really a lap and a half to go he so the, the announcers kept saying like he just looks effortless hmm. jumping over the barriers and they were right like it didn't look like the barriers were a difficulty for him. So as he's going through late stages of the race, Kibiwat's starting to t- tire and the barriers just get really hard when you're tired. Ask me how I know this. And so Koetsch <laughs> just doesn't look like that. And so he starts gaining every time he jumps, he gains a little more distance on Kibiwat and it gets down to the point where the only time where you're like, oh, maybe he is starting to get a little tired. There's 200 meters to go. The last three jumps, specifically uh, the 200-meter jump and then the last water pit, is like, whoa, he's uh, he's not uh, quite as crisp and clear. I'm talking about coach. Coach, yep. Mm-hmm. But then with coming out of the water pit, he starts sprinting with a still has a barrier to jump, and that is always horrifying <laughs> because it's by far the most dangerous barrier in the steeplechase is the last one. Because you're so tired. Well, you're so tired. And, and, and it you're trying it up. Yeah, you're trying to sprint finish. But sprint finish is great when you don't have to jump over stuff. And so he's sprinting before the barrier and just sprints right through it. His jump was flawless oh, over wow. that barrier. And I'm like, whoa, that's, if you can do that in a steeplechase, you can win world championship steeplechases every time because everyone loses ground on that last mm-hmm. barrier. Well, so Simon Koech, he ran a big personal best, 14-second personal best to run 8.04. Wow. I think that's the third fastest time. This year, uh, third fastest person behind the greats, you know, El Bacali, Germa. But maybe guys. they
0: should be a little fearful of Coach Well because he's young.
1: You know what it means is that there's more people to think about, which I like. Yeah. like for, well, come, I just think, World you know, if someone's
0: improving by leaps and bounds, they're always one to pay attention to. Yeah,
1: his momentum is right.
0: Not that they should be worried at all, just to got to run the race. But yeah. at the same token, can't count anyone out and uh, especially Coach.
1: Yeah, so Kibiwot was uh, a few seconds behind. He was 8.09. And then after that, uh, the next four guys all ran personal bests. And it's some interesting <laughs> stuff here. Abraham Sime of Ethiopia, Samuel Ferewu of Ethiopia. And then Gordy Beamish, New Zealander, runs the, the Kiwi and Oceania record, 8.13. This is almost a 40-year-old record yeah. that he just busted up. Yep. Well done, Gordy well Beamish. Done. Shout out to On Athletics Club. Whoop, whoop. Yes, that's right. Now, by the way, Gordy Beamish only started running the steeple a couple months ago. He is not a steeplechase specialist prior to this season. And so clearly, and this is what kind of the message Good board Good choice, Dathan Ritz and yeah, coach Ritz. Well-incited, <laughs> Ritz, noticing that there's a possibility here because, you know, for a, a rookie steeplechaser to break a 40-year-old Oceania record. <laughs> Same now, time. It's, it's not just a 40-year-old New Zealand record because with a previous record holder who's also a New Zealander. Um, it's it's not just that, which would be something, but New Zealand does not have like this massive depth of distance running. Every year they've got like good strong distance running always, but Australia's had some some major distance runners in the 90s and 2000s and yet none of them broke that record. Right. And Gordy Bemis just did, so yep. that was well done. And then Anthony Rodich of the USA with a big personal best as well to finish fifth, sixth in the race. Sorry, finished sixth in the race. He just looked great, which was exciting because it's like, okay, you know, I don't know that he has medal potential come World Championships. There's like an eight fourteen personal best or something, but he looked good. You never good. know with the people and that you never fall know. or exactly. go out too high, Looking or... strong. Mason Furlick, by the way, of the USA also ran a personal best. He was a couple spots back in eighth. So yeah. Two out of the three Americans in the race ran personal best times. That's great. Great momentum going to
0: world champs. Unfortunately.
1: Yeah. No, no, you got it.
0: I was just going to say, you know, I just talked about this momentum for the U.S. Unfortunately, Bernard Keeter did fall. with race It looked bad, right?
1: Well, so here's the thing. We're not exactly sure what happened because the camera only caught it on like the – well, so as it happened, the announcers didn't even notice it because mm. the they were watching. The cameras weren't on him. The cameras weren't yeah. on him. But I suddenly out of the corner of my eye was like, oh, they're about to jump the barrier. The guys who are a little bit further back and then glanced down at it. And a dude just ran full on ran straight into the barrier without jumping at all and like flipped over oh. it with legs and arms flailing. Like, holy smokes, what just happened? And the announcers didn't notice it, so they never said anything. So we don't actually know who yeah. was well, that. I can
0: reach out to Bernard Keeter, actually. It's
1: either Bernard Keeter yeah. or uh, Conseslus Capruto okay. from Kenya. But right. either way, both of them ended up with really rough races. So I yeah. think no matter who actually was that person, that I think someone else also fell yeah. or it disrupted majorly the yeah. other one. I-
0: I'll, I'll yeah. check up on Bernard Keeter. He's a previous podcast guest, by the way. Yeah, he's your and personal. He's an friend. Olympian. Well, I'm I'm just <laughs> yeah. saying I, I maybe I could reach out and see what happened. Yeah, or well, at least check his social media.
1: Right, and uh, so the you know the the big concern with moments like that is like you know See okay. Yeah, he might be hurt. Might be out I for the not. season. So I hope not. Hope not. Yeah. All and right. Remember, well.
0: I was just gonna say you'll remember H- Hillary Boer, uh he was the previous U.S. champion, mm-hmm. and he had a an uh, altercation with the, not altercation, with but the barrier. barrier. He had a yeah, and he is now recovering from that. But um, those barriers, I tell you what, you know, it's different than it's different than running the hurdles mm-hmm. because the hurdles fall when you hit them. That's the what barriers we say. do not fall when you hit them. You do. That's the first so. lesson
1: for a kid who's <laughs> who's gonna try the steeplechase for the first time. barriers don't move they don't move no matter how hard you hit them they don't move it's like running into a wall
0: it's just brutal (laughs) brutal so we're hoping the best for bernard keeter yeah yep and could bruto too
1: well we have an addition to make To uh you can you can hear quite clearly if you're listening that sound just changed because we're in a totally different location on a different day but here we are (laughs) sitting in front of our tent while we're camping with some update some added news that we've got to throw in so we're doing that and it's because another diamond league meet happened that we weren't able to record before we left for camping and this is in london and it was totally crazy just true to you know, the current year and what's happening right now mm-hmm. so let's tell you about how crazy it was and the men's 1500 meters first of all no jacob inga britain and so as a result it was interesting to see how would everybody else race when he's not in it and of course as you might guess it happened differently than they have been since he's been in it.
0: But still quickly.
1: It's still quickly. So you've got the likes of Stewie McSwain, who just looked like his old self, which is great to see. You've got Timothy Chariot, who did not look like him old, his old self, which is a little frustrating, certainly, for him. And then USA's Yard Goose, who just looks like he is here to stay right now. And we're going to tell you all about it here in just a moment. So here's how this goes. The first three across the line, i got to tell you this right now because it's just crazy, were almost under, they were under two-tenths apart. So it was a crazy sprint finish. Super fast. There's 14 men ran under 333. This is the second deepest 1500 meter race in the history of time as far as how fast so many people were running. So that's your setup, right? It's just that good. Well, as he was once known to do all the time, Stewie McSwain went out fast. Yeah. With the rabbits. And he was the
0: only one. And we thought for a second maybe he is maybe another he was a rabbit because rabbit. he rabbited last second. week
1: just well yeah he rabbited a different race or is it last week was it monaco he rabbited a different race just recently so we we're like well maybe he's rabbiting again no he's just being the old stewie and i'm glad to see it because it was exciting so at 800 meters he had like a 10 second lead or 10 meter lead sorry <laughs> not 10 second 10 meter lead and so he was way out front and it was really cool well yard Nagoose recognized that so usa's Nagoose has been savvy this yeah. season, And he saw that lead was a little too much, so he started putting some pressure on and got to the front of the chase group, started putting some pressure on. Glad he did. They didn't catch him until 200 to go, and it was actually um, Norway's Nordas who ended up catching him first. Narvin Nordas caught Stewie at 200 to go, and then Nagus, right behind him, went around Stewie. So Nordas leads the charge as they're finishing, and they're finishing fast. But in the last 50 meters, Nagus had a little extra move, and he took the victory. Yep. And let me tell you about that victory, because Yard Ngoose just became the second American ever to win a Diamond League 1500 or mile. Ever. Ever. Second American <laughs> ever. And the first one was 12 years ago when Leo Manzano did it in 2011. So this, this is just the level of insanity. As a matter of fact, if we were to try to dig further into that, Ngoose, his season... Not just this one race. His season has been legendary. So put it in perspective. First of all, this is the first time Yard Neguse has ever raced in the Diamond League circuit. He's never done it before. So he's a, he's a rookie to the Diamond League. He has finished second, third, and first in three fifteen hundreds. The best Diamond League season, aside from Leo Manzano winning one of them, but the best Diamond League season across the whole season was Matthew Centrowitz when he finished second, second, and third. Hmm. That, that's how good Neguse is wow. right now. So we're just like just wowed and impressed this and is we awesome.
0: are sending him as part of Team USA for the world championship so that will oh, yeah. be exciting
1: so he's got medal potential for sure so that was Yard and Goose it was Nordas in second uh, from Norway and then it was Great Britain's champ Neil Gorley in third who very nearly caught Nordas he finished two hundredths behind him there's like a photo finish on the line and Neil Gorley closed way faster than everyone else way faster but he was so far back with 400 meters to go that he had too much ground to make up so he didn't catch him But he said after the race, he was like, I just made bad choices. I could have won that. Yeah, you could have, but you weren't in the right spot. So in this instance, he didn't win, but he's a real metal threat as well. So that's exciting. Okay, behind Gourley, the Brits' depth was just crazy in this meet in general. Behind Gourley, two more British, Elliot Giles and Matthew Stonier, both, all three of them, by the way, running personal best times, all three of those Brits. And so those guys just were on fire in front of the home crowd. So they were really impressing, which is always exciting. And then beyond that, Cole Hawker from the United States was in the race, and I only mention him because he's still getting better and better every time he races. He's coming back from an injury, so you always kind of wonder, but he just looks better and better. Even though he was 13th in the race, he ran a season best, 332, and so we're we're glad to see that and hoping to see more of it as the season continues.
0: Absolutely. So are we ready for the women's 5,000? Yeah, 000? okay, let's do it. I'm really, like, biting. This is
1: now Andy gets chomping to geek at out. the bit,
0: is that... <laughs> Is that the phrase? I'm chomping at the bit because it's another stacked race with some of my favorite performers. We have world champion, Gudaf Gay. We have Olympic champion, Sifan Hassan, and world cross country champion, Beatrice Chebet of Kenya. So first time in history, there's five women who have run under 1420 in a single race. So a really, really fast Very deep field. So who were the five that broke away from the field in this one? So as many of these races do, they break in two packs, right? So what was the first pack like in a field like this? It was Segei, Hassan, Shabet, Medina Issa from Ethiopia. She's the world U-20 champion, so very young. 18 years old. Yep. And Alicia (laughs) Munson of the USA. Oh, no, she didn't. Alicia Munson, yes. So Munson, she latched onto the back. And she was brought through an insane race, and she kept having to work for that contact, and she stayed in it with a lot of tenacity. And that was that was cool to see because you would think, oh, are they getting away from her? And nope, nope, she'd reel them back she in. Just in the pace, she she, she wanted just wanted it. She so clearly just wanted bad. It. Yeah. And what did she run, Zach? We'll, she we, ran. we'll get to that. Okay. Okay. We'll get to that. All right. Siggy so, won in a kick. With four, uh, I'm sorry, in a time of 1412, which is number four all-time.
1: Number four. Number
0: four. Chibet trailed her in 1412, almost 1413, for a huge personal best and seventh all-time. And then Hassan was third in 1413, proving that she is in good She's form. She's in great
1: form. Because
0: she only ran like a couple races before this. Well,
1: she came off the marathon season. Right,
0: right. And I guess it was taking a, a longer time to recover. She had some niggles from that. Number nine all-time and new European record and, of course, record for the Netherlands as wow. well by doing so that.
1: the first three women all ran top ten all-time. Top ten all-time. And then,
0: I, I mean, race. like I said, for Hassan, this is this is That's not impressive. very many races yeah. this season that she's yeah. run. But, of course, you know, if Sifan Hassan is on the track competing with the best, it's very likely she'll be with them. <laughs> so it's just how, how she, she rolls. Yep. As long as she can. 18-year-old Issa finished fourth in a new U-20 world record in a time of 14:16.
1: Not just a new w- record, 14 seconds off the previous
0: yeah, U-20 so world chopped record. Yeah, so 14 <laughs> seconds. Wow. That's insanity. That's this one we're and geeked then? about, and I almost said it earlier because I'm so excited about it. Alicia Munson was next, and she was the first American woman, and she ran... The American record of 1419.45, so first woman under 1420, four seconds under the previous record.
1: That's awesome. That is so fast and amazing.
0: And she would have, if not for this field, also had the meeting record. The
1: previous meeting record was 1420. Right. And all five of them ran under it.
0: All five (laughs) of these women ran under the previous Diamond League record in London.
1: And side note, in eighth (laughs) place, Nadia Batacletti from Italy, ran a new Italian record in 1441. So three separate area or national records, not to mention a World U-20 record.
0: It was a beautiful race to watch. Yep. So cool.
1: Next on line here, we've got two more we just want to share very quickly with you because, you know, people are racing fast and we got to let you know what's going on. But we'll we'll try to keep it brief here. The women's steeplechase, 3,000 meters, um, was basically a Kenyan show between the two of them. It was Beatrice Chepkwetch, who's the current world record holder, and Jacqueline Chepkwetch, who two years ago was the World U20 champion. So she's kind of newer on the scene still, but it was Jacqueline who ended up really having the chutzpah in this one running the first time this season under nine minutes. First time any woman has run under nine minutes, she ran 8.57 to win the race by seven seconds over world record holder Beatrice, which is incredible. And then the two of them were another 12 seconds ahead of the next. Yeah. So they just they just put the hurt on everybody else. I
0: know this seems like a weird thing to note, but Jacqueline's bib, her
1: one of the two of them. Twitch? No, was it was misspelled. it was Jacqueline.
0: It was, it was the it was the one who won. Yeah.
1: Her her bib was misspelled. Misspelled. Yeah. Very strange.
0: But it was Jacqueline who won. Yes. Okay. Yep. So then she yeah hers as she's crossing the finish line. I'm thinking. This picture of her getting this super is it, is awesome it? it's photo. It's the Diamond League record, the meeting record, too, uh, right? It
1: was the meeting record, meeting not the Diamond record. League record. Yeah,
0: that's what I'm saying. That picture yeah. in history will have her name spelled wrong on her bib, which is so weird.
1: Yeah, that's kind of a bummer.
0: <laughs> Side Al- note.
1: Also, the women's 800 was an exciting race. Um, they they noted that some of the kind of the big medal contenders weren't in the event, and yet three women, three, four women ran. I think it was three. No, four women ran under 158 in this one race. So you're, you're sitting here thinking they're saying like, oh, this wasn't quite, you know, the superstars, all of them in the race. And yet uh, these are all women who are going to be running times that are tough to beat. I know. Even by the world's best. So. I think that they're
0: going to yeah. eat those words maybe a little because mm-hmm. if they're able to, right, run well, yeah. these kinds of times, they are contenders. Yes. Depending on how the race unfolds.
1: So those those names to note here, Great Britain's Gemma Riki won the race in front of home crowd, of course, got the home crowd advantage. Um, strong, low 157. And then it was Uganda's Halima Nakai in third who set a new Ugandan record again. She's been doing that a lot this season. But barely, she was just out leaned. It was 100th of a second by Natoya Gould from Jamaica. Natoya Gould-Toppin. And then it was in fourth place, Catriona Bissett who ran a new Oceania and Australian record to run 157 as well. Just sneaking under 158.
0: Exciting diamond leagues. (laughs) Lots
1: of excitement there for you from London.
0: And just real quickly, and I could unpack a bunch from this, but we just don't have the time today, but the USATF Masters US Championship was this past weekend as well. There was a 5,000-meter record on the first day of competition, and... Uh, we, we had this record from, let's see.
1: Jeannie Rice.
0: Jeannie Rice. World age group record. World age group record. And she ran 41.646 six. But there were many records, actually, that happened during this event. How
1: old is Jeannie Rice? Which which record was she? Uh, 75 to, to 79. Nice.
0: She took 12 <laughs> seconds off the previous record. So it was a big chunk, and that's yeah. why I wanted to mention it. But there were other great ones, too. So amazing performances from, from the Masters as well.
1: Fast people running fast times, mm-hmm. as we like to say. Well, that was exciting. Lots of good running stuff going on and certainly appreciate all the questions in case you didn't catch it. They were great. <laughs> and there's just more to come. There's more mm-hmm. questions coming down the pike for the next time around. You can ask your questions anytime. at running slash question. We'll respond, share some thoughts and emails, but uh, we'll also grab a few and feature them at the mm-hmm. end of the month, every month.
0: Yeah, and we had quite a few people that wanted that pre-run routine from last week. And if you would like to still get that, it's open. It's a-to-zrunning.com slash free, and we'll send you the pre-run routine in both PDF form as well as video form. So if you want that, feel free to hop on over to -to a-to-zrunning.com slash free. That's it. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you next week.